that. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 this morning. Now, when I was growing up um, as a kid, I, I really, I hate, hated drinking water, all right, just because it had no flavor. And I don't know, maybe you were like this too. Growing up, it was just, water was the last thing on my list when it came to options to drink. You know, at breakfast time, it was either juice or milk, or if mom let us, chocolate milk, right? That was the kid's drink growing up. Um, as I got older, you know, it would be like I'd prefer lemonade over water or, or you know, when you're old enough to actually get into soda, all right, Mountain Dew was something I could survive off of. Um, in college, I, I basically did survive off of Mountain Dew. Um, but I had a whole list of drinks that I would prefer above water because to me, water, it just, it had no taste and I needed flavor. Um, I also really wanted sugar. So with those two, it was like water was never on the list. But when I played sports, when I got out there on the soccer field and running back and forth for the, the whole game, by the time I got off that field, there was only one thing that I wanted. It was water. I wanted water. Okay, There was no way I wanted to, to down some chocolate milk or you know an orange juice or a Mountain Dew at that time. When I was uh, done with some sports event, it was water that I really wanted because that's the only thing that would quench that thirst. And today, um, in John chapter 4, we're going to talk about water. And we're going to talk about a thirst, not just physical, but spiritual as well. And so in John chapter 4, if you have your Bibles and you're there, John chapter 4, We'll, be, we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 6, which John here, the Apostle John, writing this story, gives us the setting of the story that's going to ha- occur, all right, this encounter that Jesus is going to have with this woman at the well. And if, you're, if you've been a Christian for quite some time, this story might sound really familiar. Uh, if you're kind of new to the Bible, uh, this story might seem a little odd, maybe a little different, uh, but we're going to walk through it today and see if we can't take a look at what Jesus is trying to get at, what, what John, the writer of the book, is trying to explain to us in this passage. So John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, I'm going to be reading from the ESV translation, says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let's go to the Lord in prayer for this morning. Heavenly Heavenly Father, we come before you today with open hearts, with open minds to your word. Lord, we just pray that you use your word. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to um, be able to use it in our lives, Lord. And we pray that through this, Lord, give me clarity of thought, give me clarity of words, that we might glorify you in applying your word to our life and to seeing what, what it is you would have us to learn and to seeing the great truth 
that Jesus, your son, came to die, to, to die on the cross for our sins and to satisfy that spiritual longing that each and every one of us has. So, Lord, we pray all this in your precious son, Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, we see here that John gives us kind of the setting. John likes to set the setting for the story, right? Every good story, you kind of have to give the setting, what's going on, what the background is. And so John gives us that here uh, right off. He says, Jesus was learning that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making more followers than John the Baptist. And so what John is getting at here is, and actually if we would were to back up a little bit in, in the passage right before this in John chapter 3, is that the Pharisees seemed to be thinking they, were, they had an opportunity to kind of, let's pit John the Baptist's disciples maybe against Jesus' disciples. Hey, look, look, Jesus is getting more followers than you guys are. What's wrong with you guys? All right, what's wrong with your message? What's better about his message? And trying to drive some wedge in between there. In fact, in, in the previous uh, passage here, we find John's disciples coming to him and saying, hey, look, John, John the Baptist, they come to him and say, look, this Jesus guy who you've been talking about, he's making more disciples and getting more followers than we are. You know, I mean, what, is this bad? What's going on here? And John, in his way, and with the most famous, um, one, of, one of the very famous verses in John chapter 3, says this, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. See, John the Baptist's whole message was to point to Jesus. His whole purpose in being there was to point people to Jesus, and he knew that. But it seemed like the Pharisees and some of Jesus' and John's enemies were going to say, hey, maybe we can pit these guys against each other. Maybe we can cause a divide. And so John, the apostle, the one writing us the story, uh, tells us that Jesus sees this, and so he decides to move on to another area to minister. All right, so he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And in verse 4, we read, And as he passed through Samaria, um, and he, uh, sorry, he's, he, we read, And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, at first glance, we might think this is no big deal. When you're, we're, um, so Judea is down south, all right? Galilee is up north, and kind of in between you have Samaria, right? So naturally, if you're traveling from south and you're going north, you have to travel through the area, right? Which, I mean, so in our terms, if you wanted to go to Indiana, all right, not sure why you might want to go to Indiana, but if you want to go to Indiana, you have need to go through what? Ohio, right? If you're going from Pennsylvania to Indiana, you're going to go through Ohio, all right? So that's what, I mean, that, that would just commonly make sense. But here it's important that we look into some of the background going on between the Jews, um, <coughs> Jesus' disciples, the people that they were from, and the Samaritans who they had to journey through this country. All right, so if we were to jump back into the Old Testament, into the book of Second Kings, you would see this picture of King David, uh, comes along, he has this kingdom, and God blesses him, and then his son Solomon inherits the kingdom, and, and God blesses him as well, as well. But after King Solomon, the, the kingdom splits, all right? There's a north and a south, and both these north and south have had a mix of good kings and bad kings. The north had mostly bad kings. Um, the south had a better mix of good kings and bad kings, but they, they were now kind of pitted against each other. 
All right, and so the world power at the time was Assyria, from all the way over here in Nineveh and Babylon, that area. And they came over and they captured that northern kingdom. They took over that northern kingdom. And what ancient civilizations used to do, like the Assyrians, they would take a lot of these more prominent people back to their to back home for slaves or to live in their own land so they can keep an eye on them, whatever. They'd leave some here, but then they'd take somebody from other countries and, hey, we'll put them back in over here. All right, it's a lot harder for somebody to, hey, we want to be free again if half of us are over here and half of us are over here and we already have some of them in here with us. So this was a strategy um, of ancient civilizations. All right, and so Assyria took the northern kingdom and they took some back and they moved in some of their own. And what happened was that some of their own brought in their own gods and they brought in their own way of life and their culture and everything. And so... Um, they were there. All right. Then eventually Babylon conquered Assyria. Babylon came over and they took the northern, uh, the southern kingdom. All right. And they took them back with them, back with them. And that's where we get the story of like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys. Um, and then eventually Persia comes along. All right. Kingdoms keep taking over kingdoms. Persia comes along and the Persian king says to the guys from the southern, uh, kingdom said, you guys can go back and you can rebuild your city, Jerusalem, and rebuild your temple and worship your God. All right. And so they come back. Well, when they come back, they, they find out that the people from the north had intermarried with the people that Assyria had moved in. And so they were not no longer full-blooded Jews. All right. They had taken some of their customs, taken some of their ways of worship, and they've kind of intermingled it with God and and their way of worship so it was that was tainted as well and so the the full-blooded jews had this animosity against these half-blooded samaritans all right and so when the the jews were building their temple again and building jerusalem the samaritans come along and hey can we let let us help you rebuild your city and rebuild your your temple and the jews are like no we don't we don't like you um you weren't faithful to god uh so you guys can't help all right, and so then the Samaritans got upset. They write back to the king and say, hey, if you let these guys build their city and build their temple, they're going to rebel and you're going to lose control of this area. All right, so that king comes back and says, okay, you guys can't rebuild. All right, and, and, and so there's this rivalry. You know, you kind of get this Hatfield-McCoy type thing going on there. There's this rivalry between the Samaritans and the Jews that had come, come back. And this rivalry went on for years and years and decades and eventually, the southern were allowed to build their temple. They were about allowed to build their city. But since they wouldn't let these guys in, the Samaritans were like, okay, well, we're going to build our own temple all right, here on this mountain because this is the mountain where Abraham first came into the land and set up an altar to God. So we think this mountain's better than Jerusalem. All right, so they built their own temple. And then along came, um, as the Jews down here... Um, got more freedom, um, they came along and they burnt down the Samaritan's temple. All right, said, that's not a real temple. We're going to come burn it down. We're going to destroy your city. All right, so there's a little bit of animosity here. If you, th- That was about 150 years before Jesus when they finally burnt down the Samaritan's temple. The Samaritans continued to worship there, but if you could imagine, there is quite, they don't, they don't get along. All right. These two, these two groups of people do not get along. Now, during Jesus' time, they're all under the rule of the Romans. 
Um, so there's a sense in how you, you guys can't fight each other right now, but, but there is this animosity sitting between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people. And so when, when John here tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it wasn't a given that, hey, this is the way you normally travel. Actually, many of the Jews, devout Jews, would travel around Samaria. All right, so here we'd go down to West Virginia and what's, what else is down there? Kentucky, right? To, to avoid Ohio. If we were going to avoid Ohio, you know, that's kind of what the Jews would do. They would go around Samaria up into Galilee. And so John here is telling us that, you know, this might not be something normal, but Jesus had it that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, so with this backdrop in mind, we find as we enter into this story, as Jesus had to pass through Samaria, um, we, we come into verse 5, and it says this. He says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So here we have Jesus journeying through Samaria, knowing the backdrop between the Jews and the Samaritans, and he comes to a well that Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the Jewish people, had dug, and he was tired from his journey, and he sat down by the well, and it was about, it says, the sixth hour, which was about noon, the middle of the day, the hot time of the day. And so this is the setting that John gives us as, okay, here's, here's how this story is going to build up. All right? And so next we see the situation that arises. In verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for me a drink, a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now again, Remember, we have that animosity there between Jews and Samaritans. But it was also in that day kind of socially unacceptable for a Jewish man to even talk to a woman alone. So can you imagine this woman's surprise when she's coming out here to this well, um, thinking, you know, and, and she sees a man sitting there, and she's probably like, well, it's a Jewish man. Okay, so at least I don't have to talk to him. And now all of a sudden he's asking her for a drink of water. And so she says... You know, why is it that you, a Jew, would ask a drink for me? And in verse 9 there, John, he goes and right out and tells us, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That was, that was the common thought in the day. Jews would avoid Samaritans at any cost they could. And so we understand this woman's surprise and is possibly even, uh, maybe she was even a bit perturbed, a bit annoyed that Jesus would, would talk to her. And why would I say that? Well, let's see. She's here in the middle of the day. Now, now in that culture, the normal time of drawing water would have been either early in the morning or in the evening before it got too hot, right? Um, the ladies would all come out to the well either in the morning, and they'd all gather water. They'd help each other gather water. They'd be able to chat with each other, you know, and just see what's going on in other people's lives and then get their water back to town before the sun was up high and shining down and really hot and harder and, and just making the job more difficult. And so this lady um, coming in the middle of the day most likely was trying to avoid 
other people. Uh, she was trying to avoid um, interaction with other people. And we'll, we will learn later in verse 18 probably why she wanted to be isolated. So looking for isolation, she waits to come to the well till later in the day. And then she gets there, and this man is sitting there. But it's oh, okay, he's a Jewish man. He's not going to talk to me. But now he wants to start up a conversation. And worse yet, he's asking me to pull a drink of water up for him. And so maybe she's also thinking, well, yeah, you're not going to talk to me until now that you're really, really thirsty. You know, you want me to do something for you. So here we have King Jesus, the creator and universe uh, and a Jewish teacher and a Samaritan woman wanting to be left alone. And as we see shortly, as we'll see shortly in this passage, her life is probably a wreck and she's a social outcast and and already the conversation, by her estimation, is kind of awkward and, and kind of annoying. And yet Jesus continues on with this conversation with her. Okay, Jesus continues the conversation and answers her in verse 10. He says this, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, I don't know if if you guys remember or if you've seen, though this was back in the day, um, two comedians, Abbott and Costello. But Abbott, Lou Costello. All right, they had this great skit called Who's On First? All right, you guys familiar with it? Okay, I hope so. If not... After the service, go on YouTube, look up who's on first. All right, it's probably one of the funniest things you'll see all day. All right, and in this skit, there are two people, two men. One is a guy that's acquainted with the local sports baseball team. He knows the players, he knows the positions, everything like that. The other guy is a reporter, and he, he's coming along. He wants to know who the players are, what, what position they play, that sort of thing. All right, and because of, in the skit, the, the names of the players, like who and what, and I don't know, as they're going back and forth, it, it's just like this big confusing argument. Because um, the first guy says, hey, I'm here. I want to know the guys, the players' names. And this guy's like, okay, well, we have who's on first. And this guy, the, the, the reporter's like, wait, that's, that's what I want to know. What's the guy's name? And he's like, who? And the other guy's like, the guy that's playing first. And this guy's like, who is playing first? He's like, that's what I want to know. Can you tell me what the guy's name is on, on first? This guy's like, what? What? No, what place? What's on second? And this guy's like, I don't want to know who's on second. No, who's on first? And they go back and forth. Again, go home and watch it. It's, 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 a, it's, um, it's funny. My cousin and I actually memorized it for a speech class in high school and had a lot of fun with it. So, but anyway, the whole point of it is... That, that both of them kind of end up confused and frustrated because they can't seem to get the other person to understand what they're talking about, right? And as sometimes when I read passages like this, 
I kind of get that feeling. Like Jesus and this woman are, are talking, um, they're discussing things, but they're, they're kind of missing each other here. Um, Jesus is trying to get talk on a, a spiritual on, in a spiritual fashion, and this lady is um, still on the, the physical water aspect. And this, is, and this is nothing new, because back in chapter 3, if you go back to chapter 3, you see the meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus, and Jesus tells him, you must be born again, and Nicodemus is like, how am I supposed to be born again? I don't think my mom would be up for that sort of thing. And, and there's that, that spiritual area that Jesus patiently, patiently works with people. I mean, one of, the, one of the great things that we can learn from these passages like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman is that Jesus is very patient. Jesus, the God of the universe, the one who created everything, finds time for us and, and is patient with us. No matter how long it takes for us to get it, he will continue to continue continue to work at it. But anyway, that's the way I feel often when I, when I read this passage that they're going back and forth. That um, so, so Jesus says to this woman, "If you know who it was was talking to you, uh, you would ask me, and I would give you living water." And she points out, "Look, this well is deep. That well was probably a hundred feet deep. All right, and you have no bucket, and you have no rope. How are you going to get this water for me? You know. Also, it's a well." It's here because there's no streams nearby. You say living water, when, and when, when they hear living water, they're thinking something running, like clean, fresh river water, um, r- rather than like from this well where it's just kind of always there. She's like, this well is here. You know, there's no, there's no rivers in the area. How are you going to get this living, this living water? Even more, are you calling yourself greater than our ancestor Jacob? He dug this well. I mean, can you hear the disbelief? Can you hear the misunderstanding in this woman's response? Jesus is speaking of a far greater spiritual need, but the woman is still thinking of the physical need. So Jesus continues um, in verse uh, 13. Jesus says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will no longer be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The water that Jesus offers results in eternal life, salvation from the penalty of the judgment of our sin. The sin that separates us from God. Actually, in the book of Jeremiah, God says this. He says in Jeremiah 2.13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So even back in the Old Testament, God is saying, this is what my people have done. They have rejected me, and they've gone their own way and tried to find their own water, tried to build their own uh, water source. Now, the house that we just bought, it has what's called a, a, a rainwater cistern. Um, and when it's working, which it's not right now, um, the rainwater from the roof of the house goes down the gutters, and there is a cistern in the backyard that all this water goes into, and it collects this water in there. And then inside the house, there is a pump, and there's also um, 
some levers you can turn to readjust the routing of the water for the house. And so you can pump that water out of the cistern and it can go to the hose in the front and the back and you can use it to wash your car and, and water your yard or, or whatever you might want to do. And it, it saves up on the water that you're bringing into the house from the city, right? And so this is what this well water, this rainwater cistern is supposed to do when it's working. Um, but if I tried to run my entire house off of that, it wouldn't work. All right, we'd run out of water way too quickly, especially as long as my kids take showers. Um, it wouldn't last very long, and that's not what it's made for. All right, the water that feeds the house is, is more important than the water in the cistern. The water in the cistern was never made to fulfill the whole house. Well, God says, my people have rejected my water, the water that comes in through the system. And they have tried to make their own cisterns, broken cisterns, and it's not working. All right? And so we kind of see that picture here. That's what Jesus is trying to get across is there is a spiritual um, dissatisfaction, a spiritual thirst inside everyone, and we're looking for different places to satisfy it. And so Jesus offers the only thing that can truly satisfy living water. But this woman, again, still not understanding, asks for this water so that she never has to come back to the well. She is still focused on the physical. She's like, hey, give me this water. That way I won't have to keep coming back here every day. Uh, that would be great. Um, and honestly, look, I'm not, I don't want to rat on her. I don't want to say anything down about her because honestly, I feel like I would be the, I'd be the same. Like, honestly, uh, it's easy for me to read stories like the one of Nicodemus and where Jesus is saying, hey, you must be born again. And I could say, come on, Nicodemus, it's easy. He's talking spiritual. Or this lady and say, hey, come on, lady, it's easy. He's, he's talking about a spiritual thirst. But if I, I think if we take an honest look at ourselves, we must say we would probably do the same thing in her situation. And why do, why do I think that? Well, all I have to do is consider basically my own prayers, my own conversations with Jesus, and see what, what they entail. How much of my own conversations with Jesus revolve around the physical things of life? Right? You know, Jesus, please uh, help me to get this uh, job promotion. That way I can have a little more money in my bank account, you know, to, to will feel a little bit more comfortable. Or Jesus, please, can you, can you end this coronavirus um, so that I can, I can go on vacation again without worrying about having to wear a mask, without worrying about getting sick, without worrying about getting other people sick? Could you, could you take that away? You know, and our prayers oftentimes, my prayers anyway, oftentimes revolve around the physical things of life. God, help me be more comfortable. Help me, you know, this, that, heal this, heal that, which, which isn't bad. It's not bad. But, but do you understand what I'm saying here when, when I say that we could probably identify with this woman better than oftentimes we might think? That we focus more on the physical. When Jesus is trying to get to the spiritual, we, we focus more on the physical. The things that pertain more to, we focus more on the things that pertain to our happiness rather than our holiness. But what Jesus' greatest concern is, is our holiness. It's not that God isn't concerned about the physical needs of our lives. He is, but he also often uses those physical needs to address the greater spiritual need 
in our life. And oftentimes we miss it because we're so focused on the physical. And can you see it in this woman? And again, not, not to rag on her or anything, but it's like, hey, if, if you could give me living water, I wouldn't have to come back here and do this each and every day in the middle of the day. And that would be such a relief for me. But Jesus is trying to get at something far deeper. So as we move on, we see Jesus switches gears here. All right, verse 16, if you look in your Bibles, Jesus says this, he says, Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. All right, I'm going to leave an awkward pause there because there probably was an awkward pause there um, if, if, if you realize what's going on. Okay, they're just talking about water, and then all of a sudden Jesus brings up the fact, the, the, this woman's past, all right? That isn't very pretty. And if you can imagine the Apostle John writing us this story, if he was writing it as a reenactment, for the lady playing the, the part of the woman at the well, he'd probably be right here. He'd probably put in parentheses, awkward pause, eyes wide open, jaw drop. You know, imagine the shock on this woman's face when, when all of a sudden Jesus, in the midst of the conversation about water, changes the conversation to address the mess that is in her life, to address the mess that most likely she was trying to avoid by coming here in the middle of the day you know, I don't want to talk to all these people because I know my life is a mess and I don't want to talk about it. And now here we are. Somehow this man knew her life inside out. And so, and if you're, and if, if this story is new to you, if you're, if you're newer to the Bible, don't, don't look at this and think, boy, Jesus, you know, is Jesus being rough on her saying, you know what? You just don't get it. Go call your husband. He'll understand. You know, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is trying to get to that, that, that deeper level of spiritual, let's, let's look deeper into this situation um, and see if we can't understand the spiritual need, the spiritual thirst that is down there. You're looking for something. You're thirsting for something. You're looking for it in the wrong places. You built your own cistern. You're looking for it somewhere else. Let's see if we can draw, if we can draw that out. All right, so let's continue. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. And so how does she respond? Verse 19. Verse 19, Jesus, so Jesus just brought out all this mess in her past, um, the, the mess of her life. Uh, and this woman says to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. All right, now. What kind of a response is that? <laughs> um, probably the response many of us would go to as well. You know, when, when God starts pushing on our sin and pushing on our past and pushing on areas we're not comfortable talking to him about, it's like, well, let's talk about theology, right? Can we, can we talk about God's sovereignty or our responsibility or the Trinity? How does that work? You know, and so this what, as one pastor called it, um, this was... Um, he called it punting for theology when all else fails. He says, you know what, when, when, when God really pushes down on us, oftentimes we try to, okay, let's, let's talk about something else. 
All right, and so you remember the, the divide between the Jews and the Samaritans, and they had their temple, and the Jews have their temple, and and so she's drawing him into this. Okay, well, where's the right place to worship? Where do I go if I want to talk to God? Where do I go if I want to make sure that God hears me? Do I have? Can I be on this mountain? Can or do I have to go to Jerusalem? Where is it? Um, and so. Jesus goes along with the woman's uh, subject change in verse 21, and he says this. He says, says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, much, much can be said about these four verses that we just covered, and entire sermons have been written about these verses and what it means as in, what to worship God in spirit and truth. But I want to just try to summarize it here briefly. The Samaritan woman bringing up this age-old argument that has divided Jews and Samaritans for centuries as to which was the proper place of worship. Um, so she's basically asking, do you, the Jews, or we, the Samaritans, who's got, the right, who's got it right? Um, if you're a prophet, you know, you, apparently you're getting information from God because somehow you know my entire past. All right, what's, what's the answer to this dilemma? Where can I go so that God can hear me and I can have fellowship with him and worship him? And Jesus responds that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is not confined to a place. All right, Jesus is telling her God is not confined to just the temple. Okay, you can't, he's not in that box. He doesn't just hang around churches. All right, we can't keep God in a box. Oftentimes we might try and say, hey, there, here's my Sunday box. I'll keep God there, all right? Or, you know, when I, or, or my God is in my crisis box. I'll keep him here, there as well. God is not confined to boxes. God is not confined to spaces. Um, and, and greater yet, he is spirit, and he is, and he is, um, he is seeking people to worship him. God is actively seeking people to worship him. It's not a game of hide-and-seek. Uh, when we did our all-nighter here a few weeks ago for the teens, we played a game called Sardines. Um, and in Sardines, uh, it's kind of the opposite of, of tag or, or, or what have you, but all the teens would be in the youth room, and we turned on all the lights, and then one teen would go and hide somewhere in the building. All right, And then all the other teens would have to go find them. All right, and, and when they found them, that, if you found the person that was hiding, you would hide with them. All right? You kind of, whether it's in a corner or somewhere or something, you kind of cram in with them until everybody, the entire teen group, is crammed into that corner, until everybody finds them. All right? That's what sardines is. God is not playing a game of sardines. He is not hiding in this temple or in this spot or over here where you have to go find him. Jesus says he is seeking you. He is seeking people to worship him. And so, if you are hurting here today because of the way others have sinned against you, God is seeking you out. 
If you are here today and you have made a mess of your life because you have done your own thing and lived your own way and your life is a disaster, there is good news. God is seeking you out. In chapter 3, Jesus encounters a religious ruler, Nicodemus, who's kind of the top-notch kind of guy in, in their society. Um, he would have been the, the leader. He would have been the one people looked up to as, hey, this is a guy of good character, good quality. In this chapter, in chapter 4, we see this woman who's, whose life is a wreck. It's a mess, and she's trying to avoid people and avoid the hurt and avoid the pain. And Jesus is seeking both of them. And God is seeking both of them and everybody in between. And so in, in verses 25 and 26, after seeing this situation that takes place between Jesus and this woman, we see the solution. Um, Jesus encounters this woman, presents her with her need for spiritual living water, and that in spite of her past, God is seeking her to worship him. We see the solution. In verse 25, he says, we see this. It says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You know, it's interesting to note that the, the Samaritan's view of the Messiah was actually probably more accurate than the Jewish view of Messiah. So the Jews were expecting their Messiah, their long-awaited Messiah to come and to be a great king and to be a great warrior and to be, defeat the Romans or whatever nation was ruling them at the time. And he was going to conquer all the nations around and they would be a great kingdom. That was the emphasis of the Jewish Messiah at the time. For the Samaritans, their view was that the Messiah was going to be a prophet who was going to come and explain the, the scriptures so that we understand them. And so that's what this uh, woman is getting at, saying Messiah is going to come and he's going to explain everything to you, to us. And Jesus' response in verse 26, he says, I who am speak to you am he. Now, if we were to look at the Greek, the literal translation of this is I am who speaks to you. I am who speaks to you. And this may sound familiar because Elsewhere in John, in John, Jesus uses this phrase, I am. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was there uh, presenting to this woman that he was the one that God sent uh, to the world. He was the, the God's Savior come into the world to save people from their sins. He was the one that they were waiting for, no matter how off their expectations were. He was that promised Messiah. And he is the one that knows your past with all its troubles, your sin, your shame, and still he is seeking after you to forgive you, to call you to follow him and to worship him. So as we, as we wrap this up this morning, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, a lot of verses. Um, and so what can we take away from this passage here this morning? There's, I mean, there's a lot in here. There's a lot we could take away. There could be, um, there could be evangelistic techniques, um, you know, theology stuff. There's, there's a lot to take away, but let me try to boil it down uh, into to one or two things. Jesus is, 
the, the main point here is Jesus is the way to eternal life. He is the only one that can satisfy our spiritual thirst. Now, I have with me here a toy. So, does this look familiar? My daughter has this toy. She's two years old. I feel like this thing's been around forever, um, like since I was a kid and since people before me were kids. Um, but anyway, this toy has a lot of different shapes cut out in it. It also has, let me see if I can get them out, shapes inside of it that are to fit in those shapes. All right? And so there's, there's a shape for each one of those. But our daughter, she's almost two, when she first got this, all right, she didn't quite get the gist of it. Um, and so she would take out all the shapes, and she would take a shape, and she would find a hole, and she would try everything to get it in that hole. All right, and she would get frustrated at times, and it wouldn't work, and she would just keep trying and trying, and sometimes she'd even throw it down and walk away, all right? And sometimes she'd come back, and then maybe she'd try a different shape and try in that same hole again and again and again and again and, and just get frustrated with it, right? And until finally she could find that one piece that went in that hole, and she got really excited, <laughs> And slowly she kind of figured out, okay, there's a piece for each hole. But, but my illustration here today is this, this is our life. I mean, this is what we are. We are a people who have a hole in our spiritual self. Uh, it's a God-shaped hole. And no matter what we try to put in there, and we try to put a lot of different things in there, Sometimes it may be relationships. Maybe we try to get relationships to fill that hole, to give us satisfaction, and we just can't, that, that just doesn't fit. All right? And sometimes maybe it's, maybe it's money. You know, if, if I had enough money, I'd feel comfortable, I'd feel fulfilled. Or if I had success, if I get to the, the presidency of, of my company, man, that's, then I've hit the, I'd hit the limit. Or if it's an athlete, you know, if I, get, if I win the gold medal, Right? If I win the gold medal, I'll have achieved it. I'll feel like I am fulfilled. And we try to, we try to fit things into that hole. And some of them satisfy for a little while. Kind of like water satisfies our thirst for a little while. But we have to keep coming back. And what the Bible teaches us is that that hole has only one shape that fits in there. And that's God. God is the only one that can satisfy our deepest spiritual longing in life. And no matter how hard we try with whatever else we try, the only thing that will fit in there is God. And that's what Jesus' message is to this woman. And that's what his message is to us today. That there is a, a thirst in each and every one of our lives that can only be satisfied by the living water that God gives. And so today, if you are here and you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, maybe you're here and your life is a mess like this woman's, or maybe your life is all well put together like Nicodemus, but you know that there is still something missing, that the, you're still not satisfied. You keep, have to go, keep going back for more of whatever it is you go to to kind of find fulfillment, to kind of find completion in your life. If that's you today, let me encourage you to ask Christ to be your Savior today. He's the only one that can satisfy that longing, that desire. But if you're a Christian here today and you've already accepted Christ as Savior, he, he does satisfy that spiritual desire. 
Let me make this point, if I can, coming from this story. What do you do when Jesus presses you on your sin? Just like this woman, you know, he he brought out, okay, here's your past. I know what your past is about. Here's the mess that is your life. Here's your hurt, your shame, your sin. What do we do when God points out to us our pride, the pride in our life? Or the lust that we give into, the control that we crave, the anger that drives us, the success we are constantly striving for, thinking it will bring satisfaction, or whatever sin it is that you may struggle with. Do you quickly change the subject? Do you quickly, okay, let's, let's talk something else. Do, you, um, do we try to move on in the conversation, or will we humble ourselves and let him deal with it and seek a him to remove it from our lives? You know, it is a great comfort to know that he knows your past. God knows our past, and that can be a scary thing at times, but it can also be a very comforting thing at times. Because here's Jesus coming to this woman and saying, I know your past, and I still want you. Right? He's not coming saying, okay, I have living water to offer, and then they get into this conversation, and she tells him, oh, I've had five husbands, and I'm not, with, I'm not married to the guy I'm with right now. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 I didn't realize it was that bad. Um, that's not what Jesus does, right? Because he knows. He knows the past. He knows the sin. He knows the hurt. He knows the pain. And that's why he comes. And that's why he's seeking those to worship him. And so it can be a great comfort to know that God knows my past and all the sin that I've committed, and still he loves me. Still, he's working with me. Still, he wants to eradicate the sin that is in my life that I keep going back to. And so, our, our question here today is, do I find my satisfaction in him, and, or do I continue to go somewhere else to find that fulfillment um, that, that can only be found in Jesus Christ? Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you and, and know that you are a God who knows all things. You know us inside and out. You know us even better than we know ourselves. And, and that can be scary. But it can also be a comfort because you still come after us. You're seeking those to worship you, Lord. And so that we can humbly come to you and say, God, you, you know me. I'm admitting who I am. And this is the struggle that I have and I need the living water that only you provide. And so, Lord, I pray today that that might be our heart's desire, that we might come to you today, Lord, with open hearts and, and open to all that you have for us, for the forgiveness of sins, for the mercy, for the grace that you offer, Lord, that we might repent and come to you and, and give our lives to you and follow you. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for this day of worship. We pray all this in your name. Amen.